When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Inspiring Sports Stories with Mark Duffield on SEM. Thanks to Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Welcome to Inspiring Sports Stories. Thanks to Bower and O'Day. And on today's show, we're going to talk to one of my favourite athletes from the 1990s, the strongman of the great Perth Wildcats teams of that era, Andrew Vlahoff. Andrew, welcome. Thank you very, very much. That's a hell of an introduction. appreciate that. <laughs> so uh, how are you, mate? Are you keeping well? Indeed. Um, very happy with um, some of the moves that the Wildcats are making now, and uh, I think we're in for a good season. So I'm a very avid spectator and, uh, and even, you know, a bit of a courtside commentator from, from time to time. Yes, uh, we have noted that. Now, let's go back all the way to the start, uh, growing up in Perth. You were, uh, you were a Kent Street high boy. I was at Kent Street and um, cut my teeth in the, uh, in, the, in the basketball program there. In fact, uh, a, a gentleman by the name of Ian Frame, who was uh, also a Redbacks teammate of mine, Started a little basketball club called the King Street Kings back in the day, and uh, we entered in the competition, and that's kind of what got me started. And then I spent literally hours and hours in the gym there uh, every lunchtime playing uh, three-on-three basketball. Was booming back then in the in the late 80s, and um, we couldn't get enough of it. And um, then joining, you know, the Saturday morning competition at Perry Lakes, and just going, you know, from from there through the, the pathway into into state teams and national teams. So I was very lucky. So you had good genes. Your mother and father were both very athletic. Tell us about them. Both were Commonwealth Games athletes and both competed in the 1962 Commonwealth Games. It was called the Empire Games back then uh, at Perry Lakes. Um, Dad was a discus thrower and mum was a uh, long jumper. And so I always tell people that, you know, my dad did all my weightlifting for me. Um, so I was very lucky to have uh, athletic parents and also very athletic sisters. So the competitive nature of our backyard games, uh, when they eventually got to basketball, uh, was, was significant as well. You were you're always a very physical player, Andrew, which made me think you would have been a hell of a footballer. Did you ever play footy or any other sports as a kid? Loved footy, yeah. Played for the mighty Kensie Killers back in the day. Uh, a little team out of Kensington, um, near uh, near Kent Street, actually. And, um, yeah, no, I used to love playing centre-half forward and, and ruck. Um, but we were a really small club, so on some weeks, I had to play under 12s, under 14s, and under 16s. <laughs> so were you always a big kid? Yes, I... You know, I was always sort of the tallest kid in the class. Um, I don't know. My mum fed me really well. A lot of veggies, a lot of uh, a lot of steak, a lot of a lot of 
milk and calcium. So, I, yeah, I was always probably the tallest kid in the class, for sure. And was the physical nature of your play, was that evident back then or is that something you developed as you, as you grew into your body? Um, I don't know. I just always felt like the... Um, the ability to bring physicality and high energy to, to being competitive, it was just came naturally to me, I guess. And as I, as I guess, you know, was a probably stronger than the average bear, um, I could handle players that were taller than me, etc. So I was able to utilise, you know, strength where where there was lack of height or um, or quickness where 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 it was required. So the um, I don't remember ever not playing a physical game. And what position on the court would you have occupied in your early days, given you would have been playing for, for, for smaller clubs before you got into the real elite talent pathways? Well, funny enough, you know, I used to play a couple of age groups up, so I started as a point guard and um, played for Applecross in the, uh, the Redback system. Um, and then, you know, my, my first... National exposure, um, I went from uh, playing in the under-16 national tournament straight to the under-18s Australian camp. And because I was three years, uh, two or three years younger than everyone, I played um, point guard and off guard in that, in that, in that particular camp. So I, I started, you know, probably as a guard but finished as a forward or a power forward. I played all my international competition essentially at the three position. Um, so I always felt like you had to have a bit of inside and a bit of outside. So being sort of six, seven, uh, and strong enough to compete inside and I guess agile enough to a degree, I'm not the quickest man in the world, but, um, I was able to compete on the perimeter with, with internationals, um, stead me in, or kept me in good stead for remaining on the national team. You also had an early introduction to life in America, didn't you? You went there as an exchange student. Yeah, that's correct. In fact, before that, um, my father was completing his PhD and uh, he took our family over to Eugene, Oregon, where I attended junior high school and made friends with one particular kid there. We kept in touch via the old aerograms, writing writing letters. And then it turns out that the opportunity to return back in high school came about. And um, the only way I could return uh, was under a... Rotary Exchange Scholarship or a church scholarship. And so we started talking to Rotary and um, I made it through that their program um, and ended up back in Eugene as, a, as an exchange student. I was, you know, and that gave me the ability to play uh, sport in, in America. Tell us about life in Eugene, Oregon. Very wet. It rains about 100 days uh, in a row, I reckon. Um, it's in the Pacific Northwest. It's where Nike was born. Um, so the the story of of, uh, of Nike, um, Bill Bowman and Phil Knight comes out of Eugene. Um, the University of Oregon is there. The very you know I think they have the best track and field stadium in in America there um, because Nike have invested so heavily into it. Um, it's a great little town, about two hundred thousand people. Um, very community orientated, very sports orientated. Um, traditionally, you know, American system: basketball in winter, football in 
in in autumn and, and baseball in the spring. Um, so regimented in that space. Uh, but I had a I had a terrific time in Eugene and still I was just there uh, about four weeks ago, just um, catching up with friends and 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 that from high school. Did you just play basketball when you were doing high school in Eugene, or did you give their um, their footy a go as well? No, I could, I only played basketball because I was only there for a, for four months um, in that exchange, and so it was only during that winter season. So I never had a crack at it. Um, funny little fact to the side, I ended up with a university scholarship to Stanford uh, in California, and in my first week, the head coach of the football team, one of the legends of the game, a guy called Jack Elway, John Elway's father, offered me a scholarship to switch sports and play tight end for, for the university. <laughs> so tight end for the uninitiated. Tell us about tight end in football. What would have been required of you oh, as a tight end? Well, you play sort of both. You play offense, you play defense, but essentially you're an offensive player at the end. And it's for guys about my height, agility, and if you've got good hands because you get thrown the ball as the extra receiver. So you do a bit of everything. It's kind of like the utility position um, in American football. What was it like? What was your introduction to college basketball like at Stanford? Pretty brutal. Um, I was uh, kind of heavily recruited and um, ended up choosing Stanford. Um, My dad gave me a lot of choices. He said, you can go to any university in America you want, as long as it's Stanford. Um, (laughs) He was very academically orientated and... um, so he essentially made that choice for me, and it was a fantastic bit of guidance from him. Um, but the uh, the thing that you probably most people don't understand about Stanford and its academic requirements, it's like the Harvard of the West Coast. So you have to get entry as a academic student before they will um, give you a sports scholarship, and that maintains their 99% graduation rate. Um, so academically, it was very challenging. Um, you know, I I actually fell asleep in a team meeting in my first year because I'd been studying all night uh, for a calculus exam, and and to be to go from playing sort of junior basketball, even though I'd I'd completed one world uh, one world junior championships, um, playing college was next level. My first year. I played against Reggie Miller. Anyway, there was some, you know, the induction or the the, uh, initiation into that first year was uh, eyes wide open and, you know, not not so much a a shock to the system because we had played against, you know, as a junior team, we'd played against some of the NBL blokes, but the level of competition day in, day out, the level of detail that they go to in training every day, uh, with scouts, with video, um, you know, you have you have to be. It's it's almost a semi-professional pursuit. We'll take a break and we'll come back and uh, resume this and talk about your college career when we come back. This is inspiring sports stories. Thanks to Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. This is inspiring sports stories with Mark Duffield on SEM. Thanks to Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Yes, and this is Inspiring Sports Stories, thanks to Bower and O'Day. And we're talking to Andrew Vlahoff, basketball great for Australia and Wildcats legend. Andrew, we left off when you just arrived at Stanford University. 
You said it was a big step up from all the representative basketball you'd played up until that point. Tell us about your university career at Stanford. Well, it was it was absolutely four years of the best uh, the best time of my life. To be to be frank with you, it was um, it was something that I had dreamed about and wanted to achieve. Um, and I was lucky to go to a university and a team that um, not only accepted me but. Um, Helped me develop as a as a player. I had a really really good coach called Mike Montgomery, who ended up uh, one of the legendary coaches of college basketball. Um, and I slot into the team quite nicely. Um, I played a little bit my freshman year, and then was a starter from my second year onwards. Um, and you know, probably the highlight we made the, the NCAA tournament in my second year but got bundled out too early but then in my senior year we won what's called the NIT tournament in Madison Square Garden and um, by then I was probably starting to hit the straps a bit um, getting ready for a professional career and um, yeah ended up you know a first tournament or all tournament first team myself and my teammate Adam Keefe we beat some really good teams along the way, and uh, it was a it was a fairy tale ending for me to finish on the championship. What sort of opposition are you coming up against in at, at that level? I'd imagine you would run across players who went on to play in the NBA quite regularly. Yeah, quite regularly. There was usually at least one or two in, in each of those teams. The Pac-10 back then was very strong. Um, UCLA and and Arizona were always. Uh, big arch rivals and a lot of them were went on to play in the NBA Sean Elliott the bloke that I was trying to remember the name of um, you know he ended up with a very long career at San Antonio Pooh Richardson um, Steve Kerr uh, Don McLean um, yeah there was a there was a, a bunch of guys Reggie Miller I think I mentioned at the start of the program um, so yeah I got to play against a lot of guys Gary Payton um also known as the glove, um, probably the biggest trash talker that I came across in my college uh, my college adventures. Um, so yeah, there were there were many guys that went on to be first round draft picks and, and long NBA careers. Were you a trash talker yourself? You look like a bloke who uh, didn't say a lot and did a bit. What what's, what were you like on the on the gab on the court? Uh, I used to like to, I suppose, let my game do the talking, but. Um, you know, one of the things that I also pride myself on was having a pretty good handle on the psychological and mental element of the game. So it never really bothered me. In fact, um, if I thought the utilisation of a bit of a sledge um, came came to my advantage, I I didn't hesitate. So... Your um, your list of honours while at Stanford is pretty impressive. You were their best defensive player three times, their most inspirational player twice, the team captain two years, and an all-conference, uh, all-academic team uh, in 1989. That's that's pretty impressive. Yeah, no, it, uh, I had a, had a great time, as I said to you. And, um, you know, the, the hard part about... Being at Stanford is, you know, it's not all bloody frat parties and and um, and, and so forth. It's, uh, it's, for me, the academic part was was quite strong, and you know, coming from a, a family 
that that prided itself, I guess, and and was an academic family. It was really important to me that I did well in school as well. So yeah, I did my economics degree there. Started out in engineering, but um, due to my need to miss a, a, a spring quarter um, to play in the Olympics in 88 and the Worlds in 1990, I ended up being outside of the engineering cycle, so I switched over to economics, and um, I'm glad I did that. Were you a smart bloke? You said you were studying calculus. I can't even spell calculus, and I'm a journalist. Were you, were you naturally smart, or you yeah, just worked I, I did okay. No, I did okay. I, I think um, I, I'd probably be no, uh, I think I got a fair number of A's in high school, but um, I had a pretty decent GPA uh, at Stanford, so um, I did I did need to work at it. I'm, I'm not a gifted person, but um, I'm probably not the not the dumbest person going around um, any basketball team. Put it that way. So. A lot of Australians would have no concept of just how big university sport is in America. What, what's it like being in that environment? <laughs> to, get a, to get a feel for it, I don't even know what the rights fees are up to. I mean, you know what Channel 7 and Fox or whatever pay for the rights of the AFL? Yep. Well, I think that's about one-hundredth of what is paid for the rights to college sports. Right. Um, so it is massive. Um, it's a, it's an incredible um, environment, and it's well sort of structured through history of you know the progression from high school into college and college into the pros. Um, the conferences themselves and the facilities will just blow your mind. Like I went to Stanford, which is one of was one of ten universities in our conference, and each one of them had a football stadium of at least 80 or 90,000 people. So ours was 90, and, um, you know, our, our gymnasium, as they call them, uh, was small, it was only 7,500. Um, but we played in, you know, Pauley Pavilion at UCLA, and that's got 16, and I think Arizona's 20. Um, Oregon now is 16. So big, big venues. So every school's got an Optus Oval and an RAC arena on its campus. What's it like playing an away game in uh, in college basketball? I'd imagine it'd get pretty hostile. It gets insane. And um, I'll tell a funny story. Is um, so there's a, there's incredible academic um, rivalry and sports rivalry between what they call the two Bay Area schools, which is the two, the two schools, the two major schools in, San, in the San Francisco Bay Area, which is Stanford and University of California, Berkeley. And so people uh, often say that the people that didn't get into Stanford academically go to Berkeley. And so there's a bit of an axe to grind there. I did not realise the depth of that uh, when I was doing a sporting interview and a journo... No disrespect to your industry, mate, but That's a journo okay. did a very clever thing on me and he said, so is it true that, you know, kids that go to Berkeley aren't smart enough to get into Stanford? And I said, yeah, that's what I've heard. And um, he cut off the, that's what I heard. <laughs> and so when, when I went to play at Berkeley, from the time I got off the bus, there were students lined up booing me. <laughs> um, and they were they were very upset at that comment. 
Anyway, I learned my lesson about being very, very careful with choosing my words. Yep. I, you, but you, I'll, I'll give you another example is if you think, you know, um, those of us that have been to the footy or been to a, a Wildcats game, the roar of the crowd is, is quite loud. But Arizona, uh, where we were playing against Steve Kerr and Sean Elliott, is probably one of the most intimidating places I've ever played in as a as a player, because they've got 21,000 people tuned into every mistake you make. Um, they go nuts whenever the the other team scores, and if it's a three pointer or a dunk, it's even louder. So it's an incredibly intimidating atmosphere when you're a young fella and you're walking in going, well, I've never exposed, I've been never, you know. I think back then, in my first year, the most people I'd ever played in front of was maybe 2,000. Um, so it was uh, it was an incredible experience and I just went, this is something else. Um, so, yeah, it was next level. Now, a few stats that are significant in your university career. Fifth in career steals, seventh in career assists. That won't surprise many who watch you play for the Wildcats. Ninth in season steals uh, and 10th in career fouls. Now, that won't surprise anyone who watched you play for the Wildcats either. <laughs> and I missed 30 games of injury, so I could have been up the closer to the top of that for sure. But, um, but you know, my theory, I mean, I was, I was a bit crafty, like I said. I used to study the game and, um, and you know, realise my strengths and weaknesses of my opponents, particularly the weaknesses when they would be careless of uh, throwing the ball away. So I'd, I'd get a few few lazy steals from time to time. But um, one of my coaches, and I'm trying to remember which one it was, basically said to me, well, the game gives you five fouls, and if you don't use most of them, what are you doing? Um, so uh, occasionally a foul just had to be used to... Um, settle someone down or at least let them know that I'm on the court. Absolutely. And I think we saw a lot of that throughout the course of your career, Andrew. We'll take a break and we'll come back to talk about your NBL career with the Perth Wildcats. This is Inspiring Sports Stories. Thanks to Bauer and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. This is Inspiring Sports Stories with Mark Duffield on SEM. Thanks to Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. And welcome back to Inspiring Sports Stories brought to you by Bower and O'Day. We're talking to basketball legend Andrew Vlahoff. Andrew, was the NBA ever on the agenda for you? Were you ever a chance? Um, hard to say, I guess, how much of a chance. During my rookie year with the Wildcats, uh, I got a call from the general manager of the Lakers called Mitch Kupchak, and um, he invited me to rookie camp with the Lakers. Um, they had one contracted position available, and there was myself and 16 other blokes all going for one position. Um, as it turned out, I was the only white fella in the group, and um, I made it through to the veteran camp invitation which three of us received, but I had to decline that because the Cats were in the grand final against the... Um, the grand final timing was um, during the veteran camp. So I elected to stay and play against the, uh, the South East Melbourne Spectres and win a championship in 91 rather than go to that vet camp. 
Yeah, it wasn't that a mistake? I don't know. Um, I feel like I was good enough to play. Uh, I had 19 points against the Houston Rockets in 1995 in the McDonald's Open in London. So I think I could have made a career out of it, maybe if I'd gone back and gone the free agent route, et cetera, et cetera, or gone into the G League and tried that. But to be honest, I was really happy with where I was at the Wildcats. And, um, you know, I think I'm realistic about my ability. I would have been an exceptionally good orange peeler in the NBA. <laughs> You you mentioned that while you were doing your college career, you also played in Olympic Games, didn't you? Nineteen eighty eight. That's correct. Yeah, my first Olympic Games in Seoul. What sort of experience was that? It was uh, for me, mate. It was a dream uh, come true. It was a lifelong, um, I guess, goal. Like my first real. Um, major goal in life was to become an Olympian and I can still remember just like yesterday getting ready to go into the main arena 100,000 people in the in the Seoul Stadium uh, with the Australian team and as I walked over the edge and in I had that you know I had that moment where it, it was um, you know it still gives me goosebumps thinking about it there was the achievement of a dream uh, achievement of a goal and um, I couldn't believe it. The fact that I was in a driver bone with an Akuba on in 37 degree heat and uh, 97% humidity had nothing to do with. Didn't take the shine off it. Um, I, I just it was it was a great moment and and loved it. Um, and I was lucky enough to go on and, and do that three more times. Who was in that team with you in '88 in Seoul? Luke Longley and Mark Brakey were the other two youngsters. I was the youngest uh, by three months. Luke's three months older than me, uh, but we were the two youngest in across any any team in the competition. So I was the youngest kid at the Olympics in 1988. Um, Andrew Gaze would would be known to people. Phil Smythe, Larry Senstock, Ray Borner, uh, Brad Dalton, Daryl Pierce, Robert Sibley. Um, was on that team, Wayne Carroll, um, and I think I'm missing one somewhere along the line. Um, anyway, I think that might be 12. How'd but, you, yeah, those were those are the guys on that team. How'd you go? We finished fourth, the highest ever in uh, in Australian boomer history. Um, and funny enough, it was that um, it was the USA team we played off for bronze. Uh, we were we squeaked through into that bronze medal game by beating Spain, and um, I'll never forget it because I had hardly played, and it was coming down to the wire, and I was on the bench, and the coach Adrian Hurley put me in the game uh, with two and a half, three minutes to go, and um, I managed to cough up an air ball, and that was about it. But I got a couple of good defensive positions, uh, possessions, and. A couple of rebounds, and we managed, not me, but the, the, the senior players, we steered at home um, to get it to get us into that bronze medal game. And that bronze medal game was something else. It was um, the first time I'd uh, played against the senior US men's team. We played against them in the juniors previously. Um, but it was, we, we lost by, I don't know, 30, uh, 30 plus, and then... Uh, we got stuck in the. I was selected for uh, random drug testing with three other the USA guys um, and myself and 
uh, two of the other boomers. Um, and we sat, and because it was the end of the tournament, they gave us a fridge full of beer. And uh, so we were we were semi-celebrating. We were celebrating our greatest finish. Um, the Americans weren't as happy uh, because they'd obviously underachieved and only got the bronze uh, in their mind. But we ended up having a very... Uh, a very fun and uh, eventful time until the drug tester said, listen, if you guys don't go to the bathroom and give us a sample, you have to stay here overnight. So uh, we stopped drinking beer quickly, all gave us a sample, and then <laughs> took off for uh, for the end of uh, end of tournament party. Tested positive for alcohol. <laughs> would have tested positive for whatever the beer they were serving us, that's for sure. That would have been, um, I reckon I would have been definitely over the .05. Was it always going to be Perth when you came back to play in the NBL or were there offers from other um, franchises? Uh, there was plenty of offers from other franchises. In fact, um, I think I have told this story previously, but uh, Perth didn't even, weren't even in the top four. They were the fifth best offer that I had received to play following my college career. And um, so in between my, uh, my junior season and my senior season, uh, is when, in 1990, the Cats won their first ever national championship or, or premiership, and the ownership changed from Bob Williams over to Kerry, and then um, Kerry uh, was able to improve that offer a little bit, and um, I ended up choosing. It still wasn't the best. But I did want to come back to Perth. Uh, I've been away from friends and family for the better part of four and a half years. And, um, and you know, as a kid growing up, my dream was to play for the Perth Wildcats. I'd seen, you know, I was actually at the very first game in, uh, at the old Perry Lake Stadium. And, uh, and I remember that was one of the things that I'd want to do. So, again, it was a bit of a dream come true in that space. Um, but, yeah, no, I was... Very close to signing with North Melbourne uh, and, and Sydney. Um, what was the standard of the NBL like in those days compared to college basketball in America? Um, pretty similar, I think. Um, the upper echelon of teams in college, I think, would be able to give our uh, NBL teams a run for their money these days. Back then in the early 90s, um, I would have said the top college teams would have ranked above us, but the NBL's got so strong now, um, I think that that uh, that I would favour the NBL over the top college teams now. And the other probably big difference is the physicality that was allowed back then um, doesn't really exist today, well, not as much. Um, and so, you know, guys from... Guys from the era that I played in, it was sort of, um, you know, no blood, no foul kind of rule, particularly particularly at Boomers camps. But um, the game's changed a lot now. It's certainly more uh, more of an entertainment product, I'd say. But, um, you know, the skill level and the athleticism now in the NBL is, you know, is probably in the top three outside of the NBA. You were a three-time NBL champion, 91, 95, and 2000. Which is your favourite memory? 
Oh, that is very hard because each one of them are unique and special to me. So my first one, obviously, is a rookie rolling into a, a team that had already won a championship backing up the second year. It was difficult. Um, and in 95, I was probably, I would say, close to being as good as I would have got as a player. So peaking, um, we won the pre-season we won the regular season. We won the grand final. We got to go to London to play against the Rockets, which we lost to, and then beat Real Madrid, the best team in Europe, to finish third in that tournament. Um, I think I was the club MVP that year and first team All-League. So that was a kind of a really good performance year. And then the 2000 year was my first year as a ridiculous number of hats I had on. I was player, captain, club CEO, and part owner. Um, so, yeah, it was an interesting mix in 2000. You're also a two-times Gays medal winner, which is handed out for the best player in the Australian international team. How big an honour was that in uh, in 91 and 93? Yeah, it was good. Like, um, I, you know, I didn't even know that award existed. <laughs> to be honest with you, and then they uh, announced it. It wasn't even an award ceremony. They just announced it and uh, sent me a trophy in the mail. Um, so it was, you know, I, I in the in the lead up to the '92 game. So we played a qualification series against um, New Zealand in order to qualify for Barcelona Olympics, and I had a pretty good series then. And that's essentially what they judged it on. Um, I think I was the leading scorer, uh, perhaps. Um, I don't remember, to be honest. So, yeah, 91 and 93, um, I think, um, you know, I had I had a lot of, particularly in 93, we played a lot of international games, um, not only in the qualification for the Worlds, but we toured the USA uh, and played against all the major college teams back then. So I um, managed to equip myself pretty well in, in, in that tour and, and in the qualies. Um, so that's why they must have given me a award. Or they just decided to be nice. We'll take another break there and we'll come back and we'll talk about captaincy of the Wildcats, ownership of the Wildcats, and how Andrew views basketball today. This is Inspiring Sports Stories, thanks to Bauer and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments, because the little things are everything. This is Inspiring Sports Stories, with Mark Duffield on SEM. Thanks to Bauer and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments, because the little things are everything. Yes, this is Inspiring Sports Stories, thanks to Bauer and O'Day, and we're talking to basketball legend Andrew Vlahoff. Andrew, you didn't just become a great player for the Wildcats, you became a great captain and a great leader as well. How big an honour was that for you? It was a tremendous honour. It was a little bit unexpected at the start because uh, I was the second youngest on the team when um, Harry Stokes and Warren Jones appointed me as the captain. Um, and so, you know, the kind of guys in front of me, or that were Ricky Grace and James Crawford and Scott Fisher, are guys that I, you know, were my teammates, but certainly in terms of seniority, had a couple of years on me. Um, but it was a it was a tremendous honour. It's one I took very seriously, um, and I felt I had discharged my responsibilities as a captain. Um, 
in in the right way, which I, you know, from a values driven and a principles driven um, philosophy on on leadership that um, that I feel like has been a, an important part of the culture of the club, um, and so um, yeah, I was honoured to to be able to lead the team uh, and the club through those I think it was ten years. It was a boom time for basketball in Perth, wasn't it? The the Wildcats were. They were almost alongside West Coast as the biggest show in town in those days. Well, I think we rated very closely to the Eagles on television. And I know that, you know, on a Friday night or a Saturday, um, we'd get a full house. People would go home, watch the replay. Um, and, you know, we were, we were on on prime time. Uh, and, and across WA on GWN. So... It was a golden era, I feel like, for, for the Wildcats that I was lucky enough to play in that 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 massive amount of publicity and and, um, and promotion that that basketball did. It was very uh, very good, and you know, I still you know when I travel around the state, still you know a lot of people still recognise me, um, which um, you know I sort of say, oh, that wasn't 20 years ago, that was 20 kilos ago. Um, so it's um. It's very nice, obviously, and, and, you know, the fans are the most important people. They're paying your wage. So I always taught, or was taught and, and wanted to and, and did impart upon our team that being uh, relevant and relatable and a good role model uh, in the community was part of your obligation as a Wildcat. And, uh, and I think our, our club has done an exceptionally good job, best in the country, um, bar none of any sports team, and that's basketball, footy, soccer, of making sure that um, our players are genuinely active in the West Australian community. You ended up as a part owner of the Wildcats. How did that happen and why did it happen? It was a bizarre set of circumstances. I was touring Germany uh, or Europe with the Australian team in 1999, and... um, I got a call from the deputy chairperson, Warren Jones, that um, told me that uh, Kerry Stokes was uh, relocating to Sydney and LA. He'd just bought, I think, half of MGM and most of Channel 7, um, something along those lines. But he was uh, essentially relinquishing ownership of the team and they were um, looking at who else would then become the new owners. And there were two parties involved. Um, and I had actually, in my final contract negotiation, uh, put a clause into my contract that if the ownership changed, I would be released and um, I could be a free agent. So when, uh, when Warren told me the two parties that were being considered, um, it took me a couple of days, but I went back to him and I said, would you consider a third option? And um, had a yarn to me, mate, Luke, and he said, well, what do you reckon? And I think, well, I, you know, I was only 29 at the time. I think it was, oh, no, I just turned 30, I just turned 30. And it all came about pretty quickly. So... We decided to do it, and Kerry was kind enough to stay on uh, and sort of hold our hand a little bit for the first 12, 18 months. 
he certainly provided um, financial assistance to us in order for us to cut our teeth properly and and get you know get set for um, the next season. And that was very you know very generous of him. Um, and we wanted to change things around, so I, that's when I altered the way in which the court was played. So instead of playing um, uh, north south, we played east west, and we built a, a whole corporate thing and, and changed it all around. And we got the PC rocking and rolling, and we won a championship in that first year. And that was the year that I recruited Paul Rogers. Um, and um, you know, Paul went on to be the MVP of the league, and you know we won a championship. So it all fell into place quite nicely. Um, so yeah, it, it was never really something I set out to do, but it came about because um, Mr. Stokes wanted to sell the team and, and move move on. They were great days for the Wildcats. Who was the best player you played with at the Wildcats? Well, now that is a hard one. Um, I played with some great players, so um, you know, I, I would consider Ricky Grace the greatest player I played with. Not because he was the best individual player. Uh, I think Todd Licky was the best individual player I played with, and you know, no one can ever forget the Alabama Slammer and you know how solid Scott Fisher was. Um, but I felt Ricky was the best player because he made our team. Um, collectively better. The way he played, the way he distributed the ball, um, his leadership on court, um, you know, was was fabulous. And, yeah, so I, I think, you know, a lot of credit um, needs to go to, to Ricky about how, how instrumental he was in making everybody else around him better, as well as being, you know, the league's best point guard for a decade. Tell us about basketball in Australia now. How do you view it and um, how far has it come? Well, I view it with a great deal of excitement. And, um, you know, as I've got a little bit I said, older and wiser, the, the importance that basketball plays for boys and girls across Australia is, is so important, I think, about um, not just the game itself, but what it teaches you. Um, teamwork, communication, goal setting, learning how to win, learning how to lose. Um, it teaches, you know, team sports teaches you so many things. And the the thing that I wish, you know, a federal government or a state government would would pay attention to is facility development. We are we're, we're punching so far above our weight internationally with a lack of facilities, if they tripled the number of indoor stadiums available, basketball would fill it. So the waiting list, I'm sure, you know, your listeners can attest to this, trying to get kids into team. And if you're in a team, trying to get a a training court or time to train, um, it's near on impossible. So I think we've we've got to take a view, particularly around this green and gold runway, is... The investment in sporting infrastructure, particularly indoor stadiums, which isn't just basketball, so that goes for netball, badminton, tennis, volleyball, whatever indoor sports you want, but we need more community sports facilities. 
it'll change the dynamics of where we are in 10 to 20 years' time uh, as international competitors, you know. Um, and not only that, we'll be healthier as a nation. So there's a massive health benefit that comes with it. Um, and again, I, I would just wish that um, government took a very, very um, detailed view of, of what's required in the next 10 to 20 years. Yeah, it's a great call. It's so important for the mental health of youngsters too to be involved in an organised sport. It's such a, a beneficial thing. 100%. Tell us 100%. about... 100%. It, it is... <laughs> That, and I'll, I'll get off my soapbox in a second, but when you look at what an investment in preventative elements of you know of, of sport and activity and, and mental health, as opposed to treating symptoms, cost-benefit analysis stacks up every day of the week. Um, but because electoral cycles are only four years and infrastructure cycles and planning is is a 25-year cycle. We don't have enough vision in our government right now to look forward and say, well, what do we want as a nation, you know, in 20 years' time or 10 years' time? And and that's where that's where we really need, as a as an industry, as sport as an industry, and basketball as an industry, we need to get way more politically active in um, in convincing um, people in government that. Sporting infrastructure is a very good community investment. The nation builder, Andrew. So pleasing to talk to you today. I think you've you're one of the greats of uh, West Australian sport. Certainly, a person who I admired watching the Wildcats emerge and evolve as a as one of the big teams on the WA sporting landscape. I thank you so much for sharing your time with us today, and uh, all the best in your future endeavours. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Enjoyed it. Andrew Vlahoff, this is Inspiring Sports Stories, thanks to Bauer and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything.